0: I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Well, thank you so much, Emma, for uh, welcoming everyone, and I'd like to join you in welcoming everyone to today's uh, program. And today's program is uh, done in in partnership with the Lymphoma Foundation of America and Cancer Care, and the title is Follicular Lymphoma Treatment Progress. This important program. I know many of you have waited for us to offer this program, and uh, we have wonderful speakers. And uh, we have actually, in terms of participants, we have over 100, 150 participants on today's program. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Iraq, Nigeria, Pakistan, Puerto Rico, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well, um, and We're delighted to have all of you. Well, actually, it is a global call, and we are delighted to have all of you on the call today. And now, it's my great pleasure to choose our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Sarah Rutherford, and Dr. Rutherford is the John P. Leonard, M.D., Gortzman, Family Research Scholar in Lymphoma, Assistant Professor of Medicine, while Cornell Medical College, Cornell University. And Dr. Rutherford will be addressing an overview of follicular lymphoma in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu. Treatment options for newly diagnosed, treatment options for relapsed refractory disease, factors that may affect treatment planning, and the role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rutherford.
0: Thank you, Dr. Messner. I'm really excited to talk to you all today about follicular lymphoma, and um, particularly with Dr. Patrick Reagan. We actually met about eight years ago as part of a, a program related to lymphoma, and it's it's really so encouraging how many new drugs have been approved for this disease during that eight-year period, and we have so much exciting data to present to you today. I will first start with an overview of follicular lymphoma. Follicular lymphoma is the most common subtype of the slow-growing or indolent is another word that we use to describe this type of lymphoma. One of the most common presentations is that people have swollen lymph nodes, for example, in their neck or under their arm, and they may come to their doctor noticing this and eventually get referred to us, um, oncologists, to help make the diagnosis. They may not have any other symptoms, and, and that's really key. The history that we take is really important for us to figure out the best way to to manage this disease. Sometimes we find enlarged lymph nodes when we are doing radiologic studies for other reasons. For for example, I have a number of patients who've had um, enlarged lymph nodes under the arm found on mammograms, which led to biopsies that show follicular lymphoma or other imaging tests done for other reasons that, that ultimately lead to this diagnosis. When lymphoma is suspected, it's very important that a biopsy be done in order to diagnose the disease accurately. And we typically do an imaging test, either a CT scan or preferably a PET CT scan, in which we're able to see the size of, of lymph nodes as well as the metabolic activity, and that helps us to confirm exactly where we suspect the disease to be at baseline so that we can later Um, repeat scans and accurately assess the response to treatment. And really a mantra for lymphoma diagnosis is to try to do what we call an excisional biopsy. So taking a full lymph node out, there are over 80 different types of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And I should have mentioned earlier, this is um, the second most common non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And um, it's important that we have an accurate diagnosis at the beginning of the course. I do want to mention the majority of patients have disease in multiple locations because this is a blood-related cancer. It is uncommon to find disease in one place, and so we like to emphasize to patients that not to, to be discouraged when you see that this disease is in more than one place. It's really quite unusual for it to be in just one place. If follicular lymphoma is confirmed, the next step would be to determine whether treatment is indicated. Some potential indications for treatment include fatigue. It can sometimes be difficult to figure out if the fatigue that patients have is related to the disease itself. But if we do rule out other, other potential causes of fatigue, uh, then we would consider that as a potential reason why someone might need treatment for this disease. Um, other potential indications would be if people have decreased blood count. Um, So, for example, if your red blood cells are low, you may feel tired from that or have other symptoms like shortness of breath. Um, If lymph nodes are particularly large, and there are some set criteria, I'm not going to go over in detail right now, but but essentially if people have large lymph nodes, we can get concerned that that could ultimately cause symptoms or problems with organ function, and that may be a reason why we think treatment needs to be given. Um, Weight loss would be another potential reason for treatment. In the absence of these types of symptoms, people can sometimes be monitored for years without treatment. There have been a lot of studies looking at early treatment, aggressive treatment, for example, with chemotherapy, and that has never been shown to make people with follicular lymphoma live longer. And our goal really is to keep people feeling as well as possible for as long as possible. People with this diagnosis typically live for many years. I do want to note that it's not considered a curable disease at this point, um, although we have some really exciting novel therapies that Dr. Reagan is going to talk about. Um, but even though it's not curable, it's really a disease that, like I said, doesn't necessarily need treatment. And if, if it does require treatment, we can often put people into remission where they can go for long intervals without treatment, and then they may require additional treatment later. We have many different therapeutic options, and so I consider that this disease to often have an excellent prognosis. Now, I'll talk about if treatment is indicated, and this is really a disease that the management needs to be tailored to an individual patient. One strategy which I favor in many situations is a drug called rituximab, and it can be given by itself as a single agent. And this is really one of the earliest targeted type therapies that was approved uh, over 20 years ago, I believe, for lymphomas, B-cell lymphomas in particular. And this is opposed to chemotherapy, which kills cells that are dividing but is not specific for those cancer cells. This drug actually targets to CD20, a protein on the surface of B-cells, and that helps it to be more specific with killing the lymphoma. And um, it can be given, like I said, as a single agent. So that means just by itself without any other drugs. Um, It is given weekly for four weeks, typically. It's very well tolerated. Um, It is given by an infusion for the first dose. And the main symptom that we see with it is is a shaking, chill-like reaction. is pretty common. Um, Our nurses are very experienced giving this and give it slowly and also stop the infusion if people have a shaking, chill-like reaction. That does not typically happen on the subsequent second, third, and fourth weekly doses. I do want to mention there is a formulation that's an injection that we can sometimes use in the second, third, and fourth, so like a shot basically, Um, but some people do continue to get an infusional version for the second, third, and fourth week. The main other issue is that it can increase the risk of infection. Um, And so I will mention that during the pandemic early phase, we would sometimes wait and hold off on giving people with follicular lymphoma diagnoses treatment initially when we were concerned about the risk of infection. But I think as we've um, learned to live with this pandemic, we do now proceed with treatment if we believe it's indicated in patients. Um, I think this gives me an opportunity to mention that I do always recommend that people get vaccines against COVID and also flu vaccine in the right season um, if they're about to start a new treatment, um, particularly with rituximab or a similar drug, because these vaccines don't work as well. Like your body doesn't mount as appropriate of a response if you get them in the course of a treatment. That being said, we still often do recommend if a new version of a vaccine were to come out while someone was on treatment, we would still recommend that they get that vaccine, um, but it just may not be quite as effective as it would have been had they not been on treatment. Now, I want to mention that um, if someone is quite symptomatic from follicular lymphoma, we might be concerned that rituximab by itself may not be sufficient. Rituximab can sometimes take weeks to months to really work, and so if someone has some mild symptoms or if there's another reason, for example, if, if they're frail and we're concerned about side effects of other agents, then um, we would we would give them rituximab as I've described. But if someone is very symptomatic, for example, very short of breath, or they have very extensive disease that's causing a lot of symptoms, then we would likely incorporate a chemotherapy drug called bendamustine, and that is a very standard frontline chemotherapy. Um, to be given to patients with follicular lymphoma. It is typically combined either with rituximab or with a newer monoclonal antibody, which is the the class of drug that rituximab is, called obinutuzumab. And I know I was asked to spell some of the more complicated words, so that's spelled O-B-I-N-U-T-U-Z-U-M-A-B. And um, this drug can be given either in the frontline setting with bendamustine or if someone's already received treatment with rituximab, it could be used in a later line therapy. It is not approved to be given by itself. So when bendamustine is given, it is um, two days in a row, usually every four weeks for a t- total of six months. This is generally a well-tolerated drug that we can give to people in in all different ages, and we sometimes give lower doses if we were concerned about potential side effects. Um, The the most concerning potential side effect is an increased infection risk, and for that reason, we usually give it with an injection that's called Neulasta. This is often given in a patch form where it injects the day after the second day of treatment, Um, so it, it actually injects on the third day, Um, It's it's a a patch can be placed on the patient's arm or on their abdomen, and it will inject about 24 hours after the chemotherapy. Other potential side effects of this drug are nausea, which is usually mild, fatigue, and rash is another potential side effect. I would say um, that it also um, does not cause hair loss, which I think is important to mention. Um, that asta that I, that I talked about can cause bone pain, uh, and that can ha- happen often around seven to ten days after it is given. Um, so that's a symptom to watch out for if, if a patient is being treated with bendamusty. Now, I think an important topic to cover is on imaging after a patient receives initial therapy. So I would typically do an imaging test. A PET scan, if possible, after about two to three cycles of a chemotherapy such as the bendamustine regimen, and then again about six weeks after completion of that treatment. Knowing that these patients with this disease will live for many, many years, and um, I do not see an exact schedule. I do not set an exact schedule of what we call surveillance imaging, but I rather order an imaging test if symptoms provoke concern that a patient. Disease, that the disease may be re- recurring. So, I would often see patients every three months ongoing after they complete treatment if they're in a complete response. And then, um, if there's some concern that the disease may be acting up, I would do another imaging test, ideally a PET scan. Now, if we do find that there's concern for relapse disease on imaging, we would like to do another biopsy to confirm that we're dealing with the same disease we were initially. And the next type of treatment, actually, I want to say that sometimes people relapse and they can be monitored without treatment. The same principles apply that I mentioned earlier. Um, So I do have a number of patients who've relapsed but are being monitored even for a few years after their initial treatment. Now, if we do think a patient needs more treatment, the next type of treatment really depends on what was given before and how long ago it was and also our goals of the treatment overall. So if a patient received rituximab and it's been three or four years, we could certainly reuse that same drug as a single agent again. If they didn't receive bendamustine yet, then we could incorporate bendamustine in a the second-line therapy. Um, and if they didn't re- use, re- get ubenituzumab, we may use that in the second-line therapy. I actually just interestingly had a patient who had gotten a bendamustine rituximab regimen about five years ago and relapsed with some symptoms, but they were pretty mild, and so I actually treated the patient with rituximab by itself at that point, and he has had a complete response to that regimen. So you can see that this approach really needs to be tailored to an individual patient. There is not an exact algorithm. Every patient is really unique with this disease, and um, it is really important that that the doctor and the patient talk very closely about different options. Now, I'm on my home stretch here, but I do want to mention one of the novel therapies in this disease, which is called lenalidomide. So this is a common drug that's given to someone who's already received rituximab, bendamustine, and maybe obinutuzumab, too. This drug is an oral medication that is approved for a number of different lymphoma types and um, is given three weeks on, one week off, ongoing, and it can be on schedules for up to one to two years. It's usually given either with rituximab or abinutuzumab as well. And I would say the most common side effects with this drug is fatigue. And then it can also lower the blood count in a similar way of chemotherapy. So particularly the white blood cell count can be lowered by this. And we will sometimes use that same drug, Nulasta, or another form of it. Pegfilgrastim is the generic version of that drug that we will use to help uh, support patients. We can also get blood transfusions or platelet transfusions if if those blood counts are low. And another side effect that can happen with this drug is is a rash. Um, If that happens, it can be managed sometimes with topical steroids, oral steroids, and or a brief interruption of the medication. I I just want to mention one other treatment that we used to use more in the past, and there still is a role in some cases. This is another chemotherapy regimen called RCHOP, and it is a standard treatment for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, a faster-growing lymphoma. There are times when we uh, may be concerned that a patient needs a more intense regimen, and this is one that we sometimes use. It does tend to have more side effects than the other agents I've used because it does include three chemotherapy drugs, um, plus rituximab, plus, prednisone, um, but I do want to mention it as a a treatment that we sometimes use for follicular lymphoma. Fortunately, because we have so many new strategies that Dr. Reagan is going to talk about, we don't use this drug um, combination as often as we used to. And one final comment I want to make, and I know Dr. Reagan is going to talk more about this too, um, I was asked to briefly address the role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments, and I believe he's going to elaborate further I think they've been very helpful, particularly during the pandemic, and also for those routine follow-up visits in which the patient is feeling well. We can sometimes get labs drawn um, at a lab close by to where the patient lives, and so they don't have to travel all the way to our center, which I know sometimes can be cumbersome with two- to three-hour visits for some people or even longer. But I do want to say that it can be difficult to assess exactly what is going on if there's an acute situation, and so we really have to decide- based on the situation, if that is an appropriate type of strategy. Uh, And you can talk to your physician about whether telemedicine is appropriate and available for your care. I'm looking forward now to hearing from Dr. Reagan about some of our novel therapies and other topics.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Rutherford. That was an outstanding, stellar presentation that really set the stage for today's program. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And I do want to acknowledge that our support for today's program comes from Gilead, and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. And now our next speaker is Dr. Patrick Reagan, and Dr. Reagan is Associate Professor of Medicine, Lymphoma and Transplant and Cellular Therapy Programs, Wilmot Cancer Institute, University of Rochester Medical Center. And Dr. Reagan will be addressing new and emerging treatments, clinical trial updates, how research contributes to your treatment options, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, and discomfort, tips to improve communication with your healthcare team, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list for questions, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Reagan.
2: Thank you, Dr. Messner, um, and uh, thank you, Dr. Rutherford. That was a great um, great Introduction and, and uh, to follicular lymphoma and overview of uh, our frontline treatment and initial evaluation. Um, so, as, as Dr. Rutherford said, um, I have some some really exciting um, things to, to to talk about, and I think it's um, you know one of the first things that she mentioned was just how amazing um, the growth in in different types of therapies, novel therapies, targeted treatments, immune therapies that we've had in flicker lymphoma and similar diseases over the last, you know, less than a decade. Um, so I wanted to talk about um, a couple of different classes of, of medications that are now available to our patients with flicker lymphoma over really, you know, uh, I didn't really have to go back very long to come up with a, a pretty long list of, of, of medications. And um, I think that there's there's a couple of different categories of, of, of medications that are, that are exciting to talk about now. And the first is... Um, a a type of therapy that was uh, just most recently approved. And so this was a a first-in-class in in terms of a a, a, a type of a a molecule called a bispecific antibody, uh, at least for patients with B-cell malignancies like follicular lymphoma. Um, And this was just approved in December 2022, Um, and it's a drug called mosunatuzumab. And as I mentioned, this is a, a, a type of therapy, Therapy called a bispecific antibody, and what that means is that there's a a portion of this antibody that will bind to um, the same thing that rituximab binds to on the surface of a follicular lymphoma cell. It also binds to um, T-cells, the patient's own T-cells after they're uh, receiving them, and uh, allows the T-cells to really target the the follicular lymphoma or other types of lymphomas that this might be used for. And I think we've seen really encouraging results in patients who've had multiple prior lines of therapy, um, uh, with response rates as high as 80% and complete response rates as high as 60%, meaning that the the scan looks completely negative. So certainly something we're very excited about. And I think this is a, a therapy that we're, you know, um, uh, many of us participated in clinical trials, uh, um, uh, uh, including these types of medications, but thinking about how we're delivering this care uh, to, to patients outside of clinical trials. And then also, you know, what's the role of the, the referring uh, institution and, the, and, the, and also the uh, practices, uh, the community practices across the, across the country and how they're giving these types of medications. Uh, the second class of medicines that I wanted to talk about is a, a, really a, a class of medications that's uh, certainly near and dear to, to, to me in terms of what I do on a day-to-day basis. But, um, a therapy that I think has really um, uh, transformed care in, in, in B-cell lymphomas in general, including flicker lymphoma, is a type of therapy called uh, CAR T-cell therapy or chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. And this is a, a treatment in which we collect patients' own cells, um, and we are they, they're modified to specifically target the, the, the lymphoma cell. Um, and and they, they specifically target... Uh, B-cells, so they, they target a, a protein on the surface of B-cells, of which the of lymphoma cells are. Um, but one of the side effects that we see is it also decreases the normal B-cells in, in a patient. But um, these have been treatments that have had extremely high rates of response and um, really encouraging durability. And I think with both of these classes of medications, the CAR T-cells and um, uh, with the bispecific antibodies, we're seeing side effects that are different from, uh, from sort of conventional chemotherapy that we've given in the past and, and even some of the other uh, drugs that I'll talk about in terms of, of the, uh, the, the specific changes to the immune system that, that happen that, that lead to some of the side effects. So for the for the CAR T-cells, we actually have two approved uh, CAR T-cell products in flicker lymphoma now, um, one which is called uh, – these names are, are – um, fairly long and, uh, and sometimes hard to pronounce, but one is axi-captogene silolucel, or yes, is the other name for that. And uh, the other medication is a, a drug called uh or Kimriah is the other name for that. And um, the, the things that are unique about these, both the bispecific antibodies and the CAR T-cells, is that they can uh, cause something called the cytokine release syndrome. And this is where um, the immune cells are binding to the uh, binding to the lymphoma cells, killing the lymphoma cells. But then they also release some chemicals that cause some changes in the body that include fever, um, muscle aches, other flu-like symptoms. And then in more severe cases, we can see things like lower blood pressure or lower oxygen levels. Um, and those may be reasons that a patient would need to be hospitalized for a portion of this therapy. and may be a reason that a patient may need to receive certain medications that, uh, that suppress the immune system uh, uh, that, 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 that we will use to, to manage those toxicities. A second set of side effects that is somewhat unique to um, these classes of drugs is a, um, a, a, a sort of syndrome of, of neurologic side effects that, that, that can occur um, and this is usually about a week or so after uh, the patients have received CAR T cells. Could be sooner in, in patients who receive those bispecific antibodies. And these are uh, neurologic side effects that are they're temporary, but in some circumstances can be serious. And again, uh, may need to be managed in the in in, in the hospital setting. Um, and they're um, in in general, uh, the vast majority of patients. And I would say. Really, you know, all patients uh, have recovery of these neurologic symptoms. But it, it does add some, some complication in how we deliver this, this care and what types of uh, facilities can, uh, can deliver this care to patients. Um, in terms of other treatments uh, that are available to us, um, one of the uh, drugs that was recently approved is a um, and these fall into more of the classes of what we call small molecule inhibitors. So they're very specifically blocking um, enzymes within a, within the lymphoma cells um, uh, that 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 lead to uh, either shrinkage of the of the lymphoma or or it can also lead to cell death. And one of those medications is a, a drug called Tazemetostat, and this is a, is an oral pill. It's very well tolerated. Um, and works extremely well in patients with flicker lymphoma, in particular in patients who have a certain type of mutation. Um, this, uh, um, this drug, what it does is it, it works on some of the, uh, the, the, the proteins that uh, help determine what, what genes are expressed in the cell. Uh, and um, in some patients with flicker lymphoma, have a mutation in something called EZH2, and uh, this, this medication works particularly well in that group of patients. But it can also have, uh, work very well in patients uh, that, that don't have that mutation. Um, so that's something that um, now we're thinking about as, we, uh, as patients who have, have relapsed follicular lymphoma. We're thinking about obtaining a biopsy and even sending off for, for this mutation, because that helps us uh, deliver more personalized care to patients. A, a, another class of small molecule uh, inhibitor drugs is a class of medications called PI3 kinase inhibitors. And um, there's been multiple different drugs that have been approved in this class. And I think um, this has been a little bit of a, a mixed bag in that we can see some, some increase in, in toxicity with, with certain of these drugs. And several of them have actually been uh, voluntarily re- removed from the market by, um, by the pharmaceutical companies. Um, I think, you know, all of these drugs, all of these classes of drugs have become available to patients through clinical trials. And I think this is a really good segue into talking about clinical trials. And I'm sure Dr. Rutherford will agree, but um, I have many patients who have directly benefited from participation in clinical trials. And I think that, you know, certainly there's there's this. Societal benefit of, of contributing to medical knowledge, um, but I think increasingly, what I'm seeing is is that our, our a patient's chance of, of of responding to a therapy that's delivered on a clinical trial is is is, is improving. I, I think as we get better at um, designing novel products, as we learn from things that um, that haven't been successful. Um, we're we're certainly seeing clinical trial therapy as, you know, can be very good treatment for patients and, and can be treatment that patients have, you know high rates of response, good quality of life. and And I, I think it's something that uh, it's 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 the way that we move forward in in this disease. Um, but I, I, I do think that um, many of the clinical trials we consider, our our therapies where we expect our patients to benefit from them. And there's many different types of clinical trials. So, um, especially in a disease like follicular lymphoma where we have a lot of really good options now, um, a a, a clinical trial, for example, that may be looking at frontline therapy, um, there's going to be a lot of, of, of data on that drug that we're using. So it's usually a treatment that has been highly effective in patients with flicker lymphoma, and we're trying to see if it's actually better than, um, than uh, a standard of care regimen. In, in um, other clinical trials where we're looking in the relapse setting, we can have what are called phase one clinical trials where we're looking at a brand new medication and seeing if this is um, uh, going to be safe and, and well tolerated and ultimately, you know, hopefully has some activity, uh, to phase two clinical trials where we're looking at medications that we already know are safe, have some idea of the clinical activity, um, uh, and we're trying to see how well does it work. We also have clinical trials where we're putting different medications together, and sometimes those are multiple approved medications for um, for follicular lymphoma. And some examples of of that that we've seen have been these bispecific antibodies like mesunituzumab that's approved, in combination with drugs like lenalidomide, which we've used for a number of years in follicular lymphoma, and so I think it's 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 and certainly when we look at our clinical trial portfolio, you know we're looking for attractive uh, clinical trials for our patients that have a, a good chance of, of patients being able to directly benefit from them. But certainly is is something that I would encourage everyone to to discuss with their doctor about what are some some possibilities for clinical trials and. And you know, would they be an appropriate candidate for that? Um, switching gears a little bit to, um, uh, to cover some of the some of the other topics we wanted to discuss, um, I think something that's really important when we uh, when we talk about any type of therapy is you know how do we prevent manage um, treatment side effects uh, symptoms from the from the lymphoma. Um, and, you know, I think this is uh, uh, something that we're oftentimes in, in clinic discussing all of the, you know, all the treatments that we're going to do, focused on uh, developing the, the treatment calendars and, and, and where you need to be and, and when you need to be there. And I think, um, you know, we, we try to focus on, um, uh, on side effects as they come up. And Um, I I don't know that we always spend a tremendous amount of time um, uh, focusing on prevention. Um, And there certainly are, within our institution and with many other institutions, there are some uh, resources that are available to patients. So our institution, for instance, has a integrative uh, uh, oncology center where um, uh, patients have the, the opportunity to um, receive things like massage or even acupuncture if it's, if it's clinically appropriate, um, uh, participate in things like cooking classes and uh, uh, exercise classes and, and those types of things. And I think that would be something that I certainly would encourage everyone to, to, to ask about. Um, in addition to that, there are actually some some randomized clinical trials where um, patients who are undergoing cancer treatment, and this is not necessarily limited to patients with lymphoma, but patients undergoing cancer treatment who have been randomized to uh, an exercise intervention either during treatment or after treatment is completed. And patients who are randomized to the exercise intervention um, uh, during treatment Actually, re- recovered. They had better strength. They had better quality of life, and uh, they also had um, uh, a quicker return to their prior level of functioning. So, um, I, I certainly encourage patients to uh, uh, to participate in, in exercise as they're able to tolerate it uh, during therapy. And uh, I, I think that's something that 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 can be can be really helpful uh, for folks. Um, the last two things that uh, I was going to discuss are sort of both related to communication with the, the healthcare team. So um, I, I think the first first thing is 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 just that the the sort of uh, tips to improve communication with the healthcare team. And I think um, in in some ways uh, we're very connected now with uh, the ability to send messages through uh, MyChart or similar. Um, uh, functions within other uh, medical record systems. My chart chart is uh, in, in in epic um, and and certainly through through phone calls and through telemedicine. Um, and I think that one of the one of the main tips that I always tell my patients is that if something is really serious, something concerning is going on, It's always really important to call. I, I think that um, in at many institutions, some of these messaging systems are not monitored over the weekend. Um, and uh, really, it's important to call those those either uh, office numbers or the emergency numbers uh, when when something serious is going on. When you really need to talk to somebody and you need to hear some, hear back within you know within an hour or within a couple of hours, I think that's really an important thing um, uh, uh, to recognize. I think my chart and similar functions and other record systems can be great for certain types of questions that require a non urgent answer. Um, and, and certainly with uh, you know the, the phone triage systems and, and sometimes we end up playing phone tag with one another. Um, those, those my chart messages can be really helpful and can help streamline things. But I think it's always really important to um, uh, to make sure that that uh, um, you're getting anything urgent across uh, to, to people quickly. I think an, another thing um, that can be really helpful uh, to patients is, uh, you know, when Especially when there's specific questions or when we're starting something out, I think you know maintaining and bringing a list of, of specific things that uh, that you want to discuss uh, with the team, I think is always a, a best practice to make sure that you're getting all of your questions answered. And I always tell uh, uh, patients as well to write things down because you know there's so much information that that, uh, um, that we share in the visit and, and, and things to talk about that. I think it's always really important to, to, to make sure you're jotting some notes down. Um, I also recommend making sure to bring someone with you. And if it is okay with the with the provider, to ask them if 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 you're if you want to record them um, and, and your provider's okay with it. I always tell my patients absolutely, you know, because it's there's there's a lot of things that we're talking about and, and, and sometimes you are not able to absorb everything. Um, and um, finally, I'll, I'll discuss with um, uh, um, some some guidelines around uh, telehealth and telemedicine appointments. Um, and I, I agree with with Dr. Rutherford. I think there's some things that are really great about this. I think that um, uh, I, I think there's the ability for for people to get another opinion. Um, uh, and, and I think that we we have to acknowledge that. Um, um, I, I'm, in, I'm in full agreement that it can be difficult to do a full assessment uh, uh, over a, a, a Zoom visit or, or, or similar uh, type of a visit. But um, I, I think that you know it, it, it does allow for some, uh, some some patients who otherwise would not have access to that to, to be able to get a, um, a, a second opinion in some cases. I think I found it useful, especially this was during the you know when when. Um, uh, things were worse with the pandemic, and we didn't have the ability. Uh, some of our patients couldn't couldn't bring someone with them to their clinic appointments. When we're reviewing treatment or scans, it was really useful to be able to do that over Zoom, so that we could include many people um, uh, from their family uh, uh, to be able to hear all that information in real time. So I think there's some some really great things about it, and I think in terms of what's needed for it, really um, a, a a smartphone with with an app that um, uh, uh, and, and access to the to the medical record system, I think that's that's maybe the easiest way to, uh, to do it um, if you have a smartphone. And then other ways that you can do that is getting a um, I actually looked uh, the other day um, to look uh, about getting some of the some of the equipment, uh, cameras and, and and speaker phones, and those can actually be obtained you know relatively inexpensively. Um, uh, and um, uh, can allow you to uh, um, uh, be able to, to, to do those uh, video visits. And we've even had some patients who live in rural areas who've been able to do it at their local oncologist's office to be able to come in and, and um, uh, uh, do Zoom appointments with us. So I think there's a, a variety of, uh, of ways that, that people can get access to those types of appointments. Um, and, uh, you know, I think... Um, uh, it's it's same thing with a with a regular visit. I think having um, you know having uh, some some uh, questions prepared and, and and a list of things uh, uh, ready really helps make those visits uh, more successful. And I think one of the things that that we certainly recognize, and this is not unique to to video visits, but you know sometimes when we're spending extra time with with a patient who needs it on that day, you know we may be running late, and we always try to make sure that. um, we have a nurse or another member of the team reach out and and let everyone know if we're running a little bit late Um, but uh, I I was going to stop there and um, I think we have a couple of other uh, presentations before we open up to questions but thanks everyone for their attention
1: thank you so much Dr. Reagan that was an outstanding presentation also stellar and lots of incredible information for our participants and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A so thank you thank you so much And our next speaker is Belita Cohen, and Ms. Cohen is the president of the Lymphoma Foundation of America, and she'll be addressing the Lymphoma Foundation of America's free programs and services, including practical and psychosocial support to cope with molecular lymphoma, and she'll also be providing information about um, how to contact the Lymphoma Foundation of America. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Cohen.
3: Thank you, Dr. Messner, for inviting us to partner with Cancer Care. Lymphoma Foundation of America is a national cancer charity. We provide free services and programs for lymphoma patients. If you are a patient or you know someone who is, we are here to help. You can call us at 734-424-2000 or go to our website for more information. For example, Lymphoma Foundation of America gives travel assistance to patients to help you with your transportation to and from your doctor appointments. We can also give you a list of many organizations that provide financial help for prescription medicines, health insurance, hotels, legal help, and family assistance for pediatric lymphoma patients. Lymphoma Foundation of America has nurse counselors that you can speak with to answer your questions. Our goal is to help you better understand your situation so you can make informed decisions about your health care. We welcome family members to contact us to learn how to help as a caregiver and also as a patient advocate. It always helps for a second set of ears. So as a patient advocate, you are able to participate in the doctor visits. You can take notes. You can be a liaison to the team of doctors and nurses. You can consult with the social workers at the cancer center where the treatment is occurring. You can have access to to records and better understand what is going on with your loved one. Lymphoma Foundation of America gives grants and awards to researchers who are dedicated to finding a cure for lymphoma, who are developing new treatments, and studying the environmental causes of lymphoma. And I just want to mention a footnote. Um, a newer therapy, CAR T-cell therapy, was um, mentioned previously, and our foundation was one of many sources of research funding that helped with the clinical trials for CAR T-cell, and eventually the FDA approval as a um, recent cancer therapy. So please visit our website. It's www.lymphomahelp.org. We have helpful information about getting second opinions, clinical trials, lymphoma diagnosis and staging. And, of course, there are many inspirational stories from people who are sharing their recovery journey. So it is my great pleasure to participate on today's panel um, thank you, Dr. Mesner and Cancer Care. We've heard some excellent information today from Dr. Rutherford and Dr. Reagan. So, thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Cowan. That was a wonderful presentation and just a wonderful organization for all of our participants who perhaps either some of you have used, utilized Lymphoma Foundation of America, but if you've not, to um, really contact them for additional information. They would be your go-to organization to get information um, about lymphoma. So um, we partner with them on all of the groups that we, all the programs that we do on lymphoma. So we're delighted to have Ms. Cowan with us today. And uh, now I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care services. I'm Dr. Carolyn Messner. I'm Senior Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. And um, I'd like to go over with you what our free programs and services are. So cancer Care is a national um, nonprofit organization, and we provide uh, really psychosocial services to people living with a cancer um, and their loved ones. And that includes, of course, uh, follicular lymphoma as well. Um, many people call our HOPE line at 1 800 813 4673 and speak with an oncology social worker because they're the ones who answer the phone. And when you call uh, Cancer Care, um, uh, usually people have a specific question, um, which our oncology social worker addresses, and then goes over with them all the services we offer. So what do we offer? So we do offer support to people throughout the country, um, a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers over your concerns. We also offer uh, resource navigation to help you find other resources for help. Um, we also offer online support groups, which people find very helpful, Um, We have uh, on our website lists all of the various uh, uh, online support groups that we offer, Um, and you can go to www.cancercare.org, and you'll be able to view all of the resources that we offer in terms of online support groups. We have them for younger adults, older adults, specific types of cancer, including lymphoma. Uh, We actually have um, on every different type of cancer and also for all different age groups, and um, so a group for um, young adults, older adults, partners, spouses. So really for um, everyone, there's a there is a group that you could participate in, and that is free. And um, they're online on, on password-protected um, uh, uh, portals that you'll all be able to feel. It's very confidential in terms of your connection there. And um, we also offer a number of publications Um, on different types of cancer and different types of topics. And, of course, we offer many of these workshops throughout the year on many different types of cancers and, again, on different topics as well. To to have a complete listing of everything that we offer, um, I would suggest you visit our website at www.cancercare.org and you will be able to see all the listing of programs that we offer. And I do want to just let you all know that um, you'll all be getting a survey monkey evaluation at the end of today's program, well, actually in a couple of days after today's program, and in that survey evaluation is an evaluation of the program. But in addition to that, you'll also be receiving um, any of the resources, phone numbers, um, web websites that we gave out, any and other information that we may not have shared today that is a resource for you to contact um, for additional help um, at no cost to you. Now we're going to move on to the Q&A, and I'm going to ask Emma to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Emma?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So
1: we have a question. um, So this question is for Dr. Reagan. A key question is, what is my prognosis? Any changes... And how that is determined? Factors considered?
2: Yeah. So I, I think um, you know, there's there's certainly some some tools that we'll use up front. And I think one of the things that um, can be, uh, uh, you know, and this is this is something that we don't know at the beginning of treatment uh, where people uh, would settle out. But one of the things that we have observed is that at least patients treated with chemotherapy. So chemotherapy plus rituximab. Patients who relapse within two years um, uh, the, the, it has a, is a higher risk group of, of, of patients. And I think that's really where we've concentrated a lot of our um, research efforts is, is on that population. Because if you look at, you know, the other 80% of patients, um, they do very, very well. And I think I, uh, Dr. Rutherford had, had mentioned this earlier, that this is a a disease that we sort of manage throughout the course of, of someone's life, and I often tell pe- patients that you know that this has similarities to other chronic diseases that we that, that, that we manage that don't carry that same weight as a as a cancer diagnosis might might carry. Um, but you know the, the the group that we're really working on, I think, where some of these newer therapies that we have, I think, are, are really going to. Uh, to make a, uh, uh, to, to, to really benefit patients is, is in that group who has that early relapse.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. Um, and um, a question for Dr. Rutherford. If I get COVID-19 undergoing uh, CD20 immunotherapy, can the COVID be very severe?
0: My experience has been that, you know, I still am seeing patients get COVID-19 in recent months, but you know, many people have mild infections. I'm trying to balance. I mean, I don't want to overstate um, not to worry, but I don't, I don't, I want you to, just like Dr. Reagan said, be aware to contact your physician right away if you have any signs and symptoms of infection, fevers, chills, et cetera, because we are still frequently using a drug called Paxlovid, which um, can help um, decrease the symptoms and shorten the course. Um, there are other strategies we can use. Um, and and the majority of my patients who've had COVID-19 infections, especially in recent uh, year or so, you know, sometimes have required hospitalization, but, but no, none, you know, requiring particularly serious um, supportive care measures. So, again, it's important to be in touch with your doctor. It is still there. It is a risk. But um, we would not hold back on the treatment that we think is the most appropriate for the disease at this point. I do think we would want all patients to get vaccinated before starting treatment, as I mentioned, and um, to be in close touch so that we can offer the support, um, the supportive care options and the, and the treatments that we have if you, if you do get infected with COVID-19 during treatment or, or close to uh, the time mm-hmm. of finishing.
1: Excellent. And uh, Dr. Reagan, I have read that follicular lymphoma can progress into diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. What are some steps I can take in addition to treatment to prevent this progression?
2: Yeah, I think um, we're not really sure that there's a, a way to really prevent um, uh, this this transformation of follicular lymphoma into diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And in fact, we sometimes will see patients who present with both, you know, both Diseases at the same time. It's really it's the same disease. It's the, the, the follicular lymphoma and the, and the diffuse large B cell lymphoma in that in that patient. It's the same lymphoma. It's just that it's looking different under the microscope and maybe behaving differently. I think uh, an important part of this is uh, sort of being able to identify. Um, that, that someone ha- has either progressed or, 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 or has transformed or may be at risk of transforming. And so I think one of the things for, for patients to really be aware of is if they develop a rapidly growing lymph node, if they develop things like drenching night sweats, um, weight loss, fevers, um, those could all be uh, indications that this lymphoma has changed. And I think from our end uh, as, as physicians, um, making sure that, you know, when, when I'm uh, starting a patient on treatment for follicular lymphoma, I've decided they're, they're, they're ready for therapy. I think getting a PET scan prior to initiating therapy is important. And if you do see an area that is much brighter on a PET scan, that can be suggestive of, of histologic transformation. I also think something that, that um, we certainly consider doing when patients relapse is you know, obtaining biopsies and 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 making sure we're still dealing with the same disease, so that you can treat it appropriately. Um, but in terms of, of of prevention, there's maybe some indication that um, uh, in in patients treated with rituximab, the rate of of um, transformation may be a little bit less. But it's a very small difference. Excellent.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and for Dr. Um, Rutherford, is um, is stem cell transplantation a treatment option for anyone with follicular lymphoma, or does someone need to be at a certain stage of the disease to be a candidate?
0: I think that's a great question, and I'll give you my take on it, but I think actually getting Dr. Reagan's take, too, because he is uh, actually uh, does stem cell transplants himself, as, a, as opposed to my practice is really limited to lymphoma treatment, non-cellular therapy, not um, not uh, stem cell transplant. So what I would say is that we did use it in very select circumstances more in the past before these novel approaches such as CAR-T and bispecific antibodies have been approved. Um, and I think in particular that group that he mentioned, that Dr. Reagan mentioned, of the patients that progress after receiving chemotherapy in the in the frontline setting within two years, um, that would be one approach, partic- I think particularly in a young patient. Um, but, um, doc- Dr. Reagan, what do you think? Um, do you agree or do you have more to add to that at this point? Yeah, no, I
2: I, I completely agree. I think that the time that I'm really thinking about it is um, someone who has that early relapse within two years, um, they receive a, another line of therapy uh, and go into a complete response. And I think in that setting, Someone who's been responsive to additional therapy, I'm certainly considering doing an autologous transplant in those patients. Um, I, I think there's there may be some other scenarios in which you would think about that in a patient who's sort of multiply relapsed. But sometimes even in our young patients, you know, let's say that they've you know they they've had multiple lines of therapy or maybe have been you know, refractory to therapies, have higher risk disease, um, you know. Uh, Considering even things like allogeneic trans, stem cell transplant, um, where you get cells from a donor, there may be some situations in follicular lymphoma patients where that's that's reasonable to consider. Though I think most patients uh, are, are not going to need that that kind of approach. Um, but no, I'm in, I'm in agreement. I think it's there's there's a there's a place for it, but I think it's really a, a relatively small number of patients who end up going through that.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Reagan. And at this point, we'd just like to do some takeaways from our speakers. If Dr. Reagan, if you could go first and just um, identify what you'd like people to take away from today's call.
2: Sure. I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that that's so exciting about the um, uh, field of lymphoma in general, and certainly in flicker lymphoma, is that um, we're really seeing the the research that has been going on for many years now uh, I think we're really seeing the uh, the benefits of uh, of that in, in at, at the at the bedside and we're seeing the benefits in, in patients um, we we have therapies that are that are working in, in, in groups of patients where you know we, we don't have a lot of other standard options and and I think it's their treatments that are really changing the natural history of the disease so I think it's a it's a really exciting time um, to be uh, uh, to be involved in in this field, and I, I think that uh, you know um, I I certainly have a have a biased opinion, but I think that that um, uh, uh, clinical trials are, are are really the the way for us to get to where we want to be in these in these diseases, and I think that patients can can individually really benefit from them as well.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much,
0: Dr. Dr. Reagan,
1: thank you. And uh, Dr. Rutherford?
0: I would really add to what Dr. Reagan said that I think some of these newer therapies that he discussed that we're really excited about, the CAR-T and the bispecific antibodies in particular, will likely move to earlier in the course of, of treatment um, as we go forward. And the way that that will be done is by um, doing clinical trials, which are, are currently underway in patients that are earlier in their course and have received less treatments. Um, and so I think that's something to really watch for. I see this field really evolving and it may be that at, at some point, not so distant future, that we really won't be using chemotherapy that often for this disease in particular. Um, so I think it's important for you all to to continue participating in these types of, of discussions and also uh, in the other organizations have um, have these types of um, seminars there are now um, these types of programs in person, virtually, um, this teleconference, and I think that that's really key for you all because it's evolving so quickly. To make sure you're asking your doctor and really trying to keep track of what's available, because we're we're getting approvals and you know, we've ha- we've already had some big approvals in the last um, few months. So I I think that's going to keep happening over time. And uh, it's re- like Dr. Reagan said, it's, it's been a really great time to be a doctor in a in a clinical researcher in this field because we're really seeing a lot of progress happen quickly. So we feel very optimistic about your courses over time.
1: Excellent. And Ms. Cowan, do you want to comment as well? Do you want to take away?
3: Um, I just want to know, uh, everyone to know that there's a lot of organizations and a lot of people of goodwill out there uh, willing to help patients and their families. And um, in the case of pediatric patients, their children. So please do reach out. There's many resources for you, and we hope you can take advantage of all of them.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants for really asking such great questions. And um, I I know we haven't been able to get to everyone's question because, of course, there's never enough time to answer all the questions in queue. So I want to recommend that all of you those of you who asked a question or have a question yet to ask or still in queue, please take your questions back to your healthcare team um, with what you've learned today and also with the confidence that you um, heard that your questions are important and they merit an answer. And they merit an answer, actually, based on, on the team that is treating you right now. So please take the information you learned back to your healthcare team um, with your question and ask your question as often as you need to. Until you get the answers that you need. Um, and uh, also, I, and just to echo what's been said in the program, we don't want any one of you to feel you're alone. We want you to now know that you're part of the community support. And there are many organizations out there to help you, including the Lymphoma Foundation mm-hmm. of America as a mate, as a great resource for you. Certainly cancer care. And we will be sending you a SurveyMonkey evaluation at the end of today's program, which is an evaluation of the program. But it will also include all the resources we mentioned today and even then additional ones. So please look out for that because those, there may be resources that you also may have not thought about, calling that could be of help to you. Again, I want to thank you all for your particip- t- persist- participation today. Although we've done this program before, this was a really incredibly uh, a wonderful program in the sense that the questions were great, The speakers addressed your questions in a very thoughtful and compassionate way, Um, and I hope you've learned a lot. And, uh, again, I want to thank you all and wish you all a very fine day. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, you may now disconnect.